0: It's the main attraction at one of America's top tourist destinations.
1: It's a spectacular, multi-stage, 20-minute experience of a ride based on Star Wars.
0: Coming up, Jason Cochran from Fromers tells us what's new at Walt Disney World as the theme park celebrates its 50th anniversary. Among the biggest changes are new ways you'll have to navigate the long lines at the Magic Kingdom.
1: It is non-stop planning on your phone from moment to moment. Very little spontaneity. The latest project at Atlas Obscura
0: features hundreds of the world's weirdest foods, drinks, and culinary traditions.
1: It's
2: a book of the strangest foods that we could find across the world, so everything in the book is pretty, you know, bizarre in its own right.
0: Gastro Obscura author Cecily Wong shares a few of their findings. And listeners tell us how fond travel memories help them cope with plans derailed by the pandemic. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come with us. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. There are big changes you have to maneuver when you visit the Disney theme parks, and your smartphone will become indispensable. The author of The Fromer's Guide to Orlando and the Disney Parks explains in just a bit. And we'll check in to hear more of your travel memories and how they're helping you get through stressful times when pandemic closures keep you from making new travel plans. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves with a look at some of the most curious foods in the world with the help of our friends at Atlas Obscura. Escargot, raw fish, fresh monkey brain. What's for dinner can mean so many different things around the world. How adventurous are you when it comes to trying something new to eat or to drink? The people at Atlas Obscura have compiled more than 500 of their most compelling culinary curiosities in their latest book. It's called Gastro Obscura. Cecily Wong helped compile their Food Adventurer's Guide, and she joins us now to explore some of the world's most original foods with the stories behind them. Cecily, thanks for being with us.
2: Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: What fun research. You got to put together a Big, fat book filled with bizarre and scary and unusual food treats.
2: Oh, yeah. It was it was really a dream job. It's whenever I describe the book, the reaction is always that I, I scored, which ah. I did.
0: <laughs> Tell us about a few of those scores. What were some of the unusual foods that made an impression on you that ended up in the book?
2: Oh, I mean, there are so many. It's always hard to choose a favorite. Um, this book, it... It's filled with foods that you could eat, but it's also filled with things that you can do with food. One thing that I always like to tell people about is um, there's a small town in um, South Carolina called St. George. And every year they have a a, a Grits Festival. Their claim to fame in this town, there's about 2,000 people, is that they eat the most grits per capita. Um, And part of this Grits Festival is a competition called Rolling in the Grits, in which they fill a kiddie pool with 3,000 pounds of cooked grits, and the competitors, they, they physically roll in this pool and they try and catch as many grits on their body as possible, and they crown a grits rolling champion.
0: Oh, my goodness. All over the world, there's there's kind of food festivals that are more like food fights.
2: Yeah. There's there's another one in Thailand that's really amazing. It's in the ruins of a 13th century temple, um, and they set up this elaborate buffet of fresh fruits, and it's for monkeys, and they let monkeys run loose through all this beautiful fruit.
0: Oh, and they just go crazy with all the fresh fruit. Um, Your book opens up with a warning. It says, not everything in gastro-obscura should be eaten. Some of the foods in this book are a wonder to learn about, but can actually be dangerous to eat. What's an example of a dangerous food that you covered?
3: Yeah,
2: so we have some traditionally dangerous foods in that they, they contain some poisons, and so you have to be a little careful. An example is ackee, which is a fruit um, that grows in Jamaica. And it's actually half of the national dish of Jamaica ackee and saltfish. So it's ubiquitous. Everyone eats it. But the ackee is poisonous if you eat it fresh. And so there's, there's a way of preparation where you boil it for a really long time and it kind of leaches out the toxins and makes it safe to eat. So we have those kinds of foods that actually contain poison. And then we have foods that it just might not be advisable to eat it. Um, an example is something called bog butter. Um, it's butter that has been buried in bogs in Ireland. Um, and this is kind of a centuries-old technique for preservation, where they would hmm. take butter, stick it in a wooden vessel, usually cover it in animal skins, and kind of leave it in the ground. But a lot of butter got forgotten in the bogs, and so it's been aging.
0: Oh, no. You stumble onto that with a nice loaf of uh, uh, Irish bread, and you can get yourself probably a tummy ache.
2: Exactly. Well, you can still eat it, and they're still, you know, they're digging up bog butter that's hundreds of years old, and they're still eating it. It just, you know, is it advisable to eat? Um, Are we Mm. saying go dig up the bog butter and taste it? Um, That's, I I suppose, is up to you.
0: Okay, so yours is a food book that comes with a, a health warning. You've got so many... Inter- I Just just paging through the book, you stumble into things that so you can't believe people actually eat this stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a book of the strangest foods that we could find across the world. So everything in the book is pretty, you know, bizarre in its own right. T-
0: tell us about the beer from Chile. It's made from fog water.
2: Oh, yes. This is pretty incredible. And I, a lot of the foods of this book kind of celebrate the ingenuity of people making food in climates where... The resources are limited, and so this is a good example. Um, there's a dry desert in northern Chile where there's very, very little rainfall, and so their main one of their main sources of water is is the fog that rolls off the ocean. And so, since the 50s, they've been um, setting up these nets that that catch the condensation, and they dribble down the net and. They collect the rainwater that way, and so there are two guys who decided to make beer with this water, and they Mm. say it's the the purest water you can use for beer.
0: Wow. That reminds me in Santorini, another in the Greek uh, Isles, very, very dry climate, and they grow grapes there for their wine, and it doesn't rain. But they grow the vines in in a way that's sort of like a bonsai tree, makes a little basket, And the basket collects the dew in the morning. And that's how the grapes get watered. And it's beautiful wine. Now, in your book, you also talk about, um, famously, in different parts of the world, people eat insects. And that's just not part of our culture. What's some kind of uh, insect that comes to mind that you might encounter in your travels that people are eating?
2: You know, they're eating insects all over the world. And if I'm honest, I think we're going to be eating insects very soon. It's a copious Great source of protein, and um, I don't know if you've eaten bugs before, but they're they they can be pretty tasty if you if you prepare them the right way.
0: you wrote about something that does not sound very appetizing to me big butt ants in Peru
2: yeah I, I have not tried a big butt ant they're very rare they're only available um, during this fleeting window between October and November while they're mating, but it does seem like this is an ant that would have a lot of flavor because their big butts um, are are filled with eggs.
0: So it's like ant caviar. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cecily Wong, and she compiled the Gastro Obscura Guide with her partners at Atlas Obscura, and it's a compilation of the world's most wondrous and sometimes downright bizarre foods and beverages. There's more information on her work at gastroobscura.com. So, Cecily, let's go to Europe for a minute because I love some of the things you uncovered in Europe. I love Medoc wine from uh, the area around Bordeaux in France. And there's a festival called the Medoc Marathon, which sounds just like a hedonist's dream come true. Tell us a little about this race in the best wine country around.
2: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. This is one of my favorite celebrations of food because it is so absurd. You're in the Medoc wine region, which is just, you know, beautiful, idyllic, filled with vineyards and chateaus, and so they've carved out this marathon. But the unique spin is that there are um, stops along the way in which you stop and you drink wine and you eat specialties from the region. So there are 23 glasses of wine that you drink along the way, um, and some of the stops have foie gras, there are oysters, there's ice cream.
0: That's incredible. How many people?
2: 10,000 people. It's very, very popular.
0: So you run 26 miles, and you drink, a, I, I would imagine, the French wouldn't go if it wasn't good wine, and you got your foie gras and your oysters and call it a race. Ha.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not sure many people are running the whole way. I think that'd be pretty hard. But you get, you get six and a half hours, and, okay. um, you know, it's still well, 26 good, miles. That's
0: a good clip. Ha. I'd like to try that, actually. Hey, another marathon might be checking out the longest fresh food market anywhere, and that's in Paris. And you write about the Rungis market.
2: That is a place that I would love to visit. Um, it is just this massive, massive showroom of everything that France has to offer. It's 570 acres, and mm. there's everything.
0: And the French really go for the, the freshness of it. I mean, everything is just funneled, just expressed right into Paris. Uh, there's a sort of the historic market in Paris, Les Halles, and that's right downtown in the old center of town. But uh, back in what, 1969, they closed that down just from a practicality point of view, and they opened this massive market on the edge of town, Rungis, R-U-N-G-I-S. So that would be quite a spectacle, I would say.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's like a little town.
0: And when there's a little town like that, you've got a chance just to see a slice of France and all sorts of beautiful eateries nearby and everything. It's worth putting on your list. Another very interesting thing when you're in Europe is to remember that a lot of the richest daughters who didn't find a husband would end up in convents or abbeys, and they had a lot of money from their families to keep them happy when they were cloistered away, and they had lots of sugar, and part of their job was to make sure everything was clean, and they washed all the clothing there with uh, egg whites, and they had egg yolks left over. And these clever nuns, with their sugar and their egg yolks, would make beautiful, beautiful pastries. And to this day, we enjoy this sort of nun sweets all over the Catholic part of Europe. What's a a nun kind of uh, sweet that would be a favorite that you'd keep your eyes open for if you're traveling around Southern Europe?
2: Uh, there's um, there's an Easter cake in in Sicily made by nuns called cassata. And it is, it's sponge cake that's been soaked in liquor. And then there's layers of um, kind of a sweetened ricotta filling. And then the outside has a thin layer of marzipan um, that's flavored with pistachio. But there's also um, there's a shop in Barcelona called Calum, I believe. And they're a little cafe and they, they sell all monastery foods um, mm. from across Europe.
0: There are a lot of surprising food traditions around the world that Cecily Wong and the team at Atlas Obscura have compiled in their new book, Gastro Obscura. It's due out on October 12th. Cecily's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from her home studio in Portland. There's more about Cecily, including her novel Diamond Head, at cecilywong.com. Cecily, you've sampled so many interesting treats. If you could take me to one place that you discovered in your work for putting this book together so I could have a unforgettable taste experience, what would it be and where would we be?
2: Oh, that is just an impossible question. Um, on the island of Sardinia in Italy, there's a family passing down a pasta-making tradition. It's, I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, but it's called Sou which translates to Threads of God. And it's a handmade pasta that only the, the female members of one family know how to make. They've passed it down through Many, many generations, and now there's a handful of women who know how to make it. And there's a whole pilgrimage that you have to make in order to eat it.
0: Okay, Cecily, you gave me reason to go to Sardinia. Thanks again, Cecily Wong, and the book is Gastro Obscura. Bon appetit and happy travels.
2: Thanks, Rick. Happy travels.
0: Atlas Obscura co-founder Dylan Thuris is Cecily's co-author on the Gastro Obscura book. He's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves next month to celebrate Halloween with some of the strangest things they've found around the world. Listeners check in with their fondest travel memories in just a bit. But first, Fromer's editor-in-chief, Jason Cochran, is keeping an eye on the big changes the Disney folks are making when it comes to what you have to do when visiting their theme parks. He explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. Just in time for its 50th anniversary, the Disney Corporation has announced major changes in how you visit their theme parks in Orlando. Travel writer Jason Cochran is our authority on all things Disney and he's been keeping an eye on their announcements and analyzing what it means for the average American family on vacation. Jason writes The Fromer's Guide to Orlando and Disney World and he joins us now to explain what you should expect next time you're in Orlando. Jason, thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be back. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, thanks, considering this crazy world we're living through and trying to travel during a pandemic. But, or uh, dream of it, yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, I want to get into Florida in a minute here, but get us up to date on, on just the big global Disney scene. What's new globally? Where are the parks, first of all?
1: You know, they were some of the first things to attempt to come back uh, in the middle of 2020. In July, uh, the Florida theme parks came back, um, all of them, including Disney and Universal's. California took until March of 2021 to come back, but uh, by and large, pretty much all of them have returned. In the beginning, a lot of them had some uh, pretty strict pandemic rules, masks outside and socially uh-huh. distanced lines. A lot of that has gone away, and now there's there's a modicum of restraint. But uh, for the most part, you can go to the parks and they feel very similarly to the way they mm-hmm. used to feel. There are some noticeable differences, like not as many staff members anymore and probably fewer people in the parks, too. But they're back, and they're trying to to get back on the horse.
0: Well, I I bet they've got a lot of capital tied up in these parks. Also, there's parks uh, in different countries outside of the United States. Where would you find big Disney theme parks?
1: The Disney parks, well, of course, the original is in California. The second set they opened were all in Florida, south of Orlando. The third one, uh, interestingly, it's licensed by Disney, but it's a Disney park. It's Tokyo Disneyland. And then they also have them in Paris or outside of Paris. Uh, In Shanghai, which is the most recent one, and one smallish one in Hong Kong.
0: Okay. Disney seems like the dominant um, corporation, but the theme park industry is is pretty big. What
1: are the other big players? Right now in America, probably the biggest player outside of Disney, the heaviest hitter, is Universal, which has, of course, the original in Hollywood. Uh, But Orlando has two theme parks and a waterside park, and they're about to... uh, well, they're continuing construction now on a third major theme park that will open in about three years, but you know, of course, in America, there's also the Six Flags and the Bush Gardens and all those sort of lower tier day trip things that I don't think people maybe go on vacation to do as much as they do they visit when they're near their homes, but Universal and Disney are the ones people will get in a plane and go visit yeah.
0: and and I would imagine disney is is the dominant
1: for sure in in Florida, Magic Kingdom is the fifty year old park this year and that one gets about 20 million people every single year, which is the the most popular theme park in the world.
0: That is incredible. It is. People like to say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Do you get a sense that at corporate headquarters, as they do different things to shuffle around how they handle crowds during COVID and so on, that Disney is taking advantage of this time to kind of rethink how they organize crowds and how they monetize things?
1: Oh, uh, so much. I think... If you the last time you have been to a Disney park, if you've ever been, was maybe four or five years ago. You go back now, the way you have to handle going to a Disney park has completely changed, and a lot of the most recent uh, developments since the pandemic came and now is settling down. That's when the biggest changes sort of came in. So Disney has really used the pandemic to try to bring in a lot, a lot more um, automation. Uh, a lot more uh, online scheduling to try to put everybody under their smartphones to decide what they're going to do all during the day, have your schedule laid out, including ordering food ahead of time on your smartphone, using your smartphone to wait in virtual queues for lines that are really full. Five years ago, that wasn't the case. You could just walk up to these parks, buy a ticket, walk in. Now you you have to plan from the very start. You have to decide which day you want to go, get a reservation because they're careful not to overbook the parks now, and then once you're in the park... It is nonstop planning on your phone from moment to moment. Very little spontaneity if you want to get the most out of the parks now. That all happened this last year.
0: If grandma or grandpa wants to go there with the grandkids and they haven't been there for a generation and they're not comfortable with their smartphone,
1: it's going to be kind of challenging. Yeah, you better hand the phone to the grandkid. Because you know Ah, the most popular rides at Disney, right now the most popular ride at both coasts is called Rise of the Resistance. It's a spectacular multi-stage 20-minute experience of a ride based on Star Wars, but you can't just join the line. You have to get in a virtual line using the app and then a lottery system at seven in the morning. Tickets are gone within a, a blink of an eye. If you're grandma and grandpa, unless you're one of those really tech savvy grandma and grandpas, uh, you're going to have a hard time. So
0: that's a 20 minute ride. That's the, the sort of the keystone and you build your day around that. Once yeah, you that's know what people time. are doing. Mm-hmm.
1: You now, yeah. now pretty much snag the things you most want to do as soon as you can. It's a uh-huh. game of scarcity. And then you fill in the day around that. Do you actually, because
0: of these virtual lines, spend less time standing in line if you do it right?
1: If you do it right, but it's very difficult to do it right uh, because you're not ever sure you're going to get into the the lines you know, that you want to get into. I've gone to Disney in the course of researching the Frommer's Guide and not been able to get on to Rise of the Resistance at all. It's completely shut out. And I imagine there's quite a number of people who will fly in from Ohio or wherever they, they ah. come from and then don't get to ride the biggest ride that Disney is advertising, but if you plan it right, let's say everything goes well, yeah, sure, you can plan a whole day that way.
0: Our guide to the changes at Walt Disney World is Jason Cochran. Jason's the editor in chief at Fromers, where he writes their guidebook to Orlando and the Disney and Universal theme parks, as well as their guide to London. You can find more of Jason's updates at Fromers.com. So the big challenge for travelers is tips on on crowd savvy, how to how to maximize your time and minimize those lines. Tell us about this new Genie system they've got.
1: The Disney has just announced um, in the summertime that they're going to roll out Genie in the fall. Genie is it's part of the app that I was talking about that everyone has to pretty much use. And what it does, it plans the day for you. I think Disney now has realized that planning Disney is difficult. It's, it's become a burden and people know it. And so what they're going to try to do is plan it for you using an algorithm. You're interested in princesses or food, it'll plan a whole day that it's sort of around whatever themes you would like to explore go to this ride at this time of day, maybe this restaurant at this time of day, uh, and it'll lay out an entire itinerary for you on the app that you can just choose to follow if you want. Or you can toss out some things and the algorithm will select new ones. That's genie. It's saying we're going to plan your whole day for you and it'll cost nothing. But then they're going to add extra add-ons to this that you can pay for that give you things like quicker lines and things like that. But the base, they're helping plan the day. Okay, so you still need
0: a little fast track supplement or you're going to waste time in lines
1: until very recently. A lot of people know the word fast pass. I think it's sort of become one of those vocabulary words that pop culture knows. Right. Fast pass is now gone as of this summer. It had been around since the 90s. And what it was, it was a timed ticket for the shortest line of an attraction or something or, you know, a, Mm -hmm. a show or something. And everyone got it as part of their ticket. It was free. It was one of the premium pluses that you got. Because you paid a little bit more to go to Disney, you also got fast passes. Thank you for right. coming. That's yeah. gone. Now you will have to pay if you want to get in the shorter lines. There's a couple avenues that they're going to make you pay. You'll have to pay so much to get the lower tier rides and a little higher to get the more popular rides. But the idea that you'll still be able to get a fast pass line and plan your day around that schedule, um, that's gone. You don't have to pay.
0: I mean, you get your Genie system and then you pay extra to get some kind of a Genie plus where you get yeah, it's this so aspect.
1: complicated. Genie plus, right. Jeez, Which only yeah. is good for the semi-popular rides. If you for want the, the most med- popular yeah. rides that normally have much, you know, two hour waits of one and a half hour waits, then you pay a separate fee entirely per ride. Now oh, they haven't goodness. yet announced uh, as of our conversation, what they're going to charge for each of these rides, but they did roll out a similar system in Paris in July and one of the kiddie rides that's very popular at Disney is called Peter Pan's Flight. I think every toddler knows it. It's where you ride a pirate ship through Peter Pan's Never Neverland. Well, yes. that one, if you buy the fast lane, it's about 15 euro per person to wait in the fast line once. So a family... I mean, twenty. Four. that's a $20... That's a supplement beyond your regular ticket. Beyond what you pay to get into the park. So let's say you pay that. Now, you're paying, you're paying another $70 just to ride that.
0: Oh, my goodness. We're getting an update from Disney travel expert Jason Cochran right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jason writes the Fromers Disney World Universal and Orlando guidebook, as well as their guide to London. His website is jasoncochran.com. Hey, Jason, um, so it sounds like the old-fashioned, just go there and stand in a line, that's uh, actually being phased out.
1: Yeah, it's gone. You, it really is. The spontaneity is now not a part of the Disney experience. You know, you literally have to plan just the day you want to go. You have to plan far in advance uh, and hope they have space.
0: What are some other ways that Disney is monetizing things now to maximize their profit?
1: Well, I think the biggest one is FastPass, the one that the fans are the really the most upset at because you now it's been around since the 90s and everyone's expected to get it for free and they no longer do. But over the past three or four years, uh, before the pandemic, too, they started withdrawing a lot of the freebies. Uh, one of because them was you used
0: to get a free shuttle from the yeah, airport,
1: right? That's right. It was called the Disney's Magical Express, and you could get on a coach at the Orlando airport, and it would take you for free to the Disney campus where there are free buses. So a lot of families would save money using it; they wouldn't have to rent a car because the bus would take them automatically. That's being withdrawn in January with no known replacement that has been announced. So now families who want to go to Disney, are going to have to take a, a taxi, an Uber, a shuttle bus, or rent a car, which is an expense they didn't have before.
0: Do they have to pay to park it then? At the oh, yeah. Tw-
1: it's about 20 dollars a day, depending on how expensive your resort is. Mm-hmm. That's That also is aggressive. new, by the way. Four or five years ago, you could park for free, and that was another one of those pluses they used to give you just for going there, but that was withdrawn as well. Jason, when we think of all of this sort of
0: changes in corporate policy at Disneyland and Disney World, it seems quite smart, quite coordinated, quite intentional. Is it universal, like uh, a change that's going on in all the parks, or is that unique to Florida? Well,
1: it's interesting. You said when you say universal, you mean global, right? But global, universal yeah. parks have actually had a paid version of the Fast Pass for a while now, and it was something they only gave to people who stayed in their hotels. Is something actually Disney is catching up with the other parks? The difference, of ah. course, is just Disney is so much more expensive, and it used to be something they gave away for free. Universal's always been a two or three hundred dollar add on, depending on the day, that you right. could add on fast access to to some of its lines. It's called Express. Uh, it hasn't that hasn't really raised the ire of the theme park going community as much as Disney's changes have. But Disney is always under a different microscope. Compared, is there an compared ire the being others.
0: raised? I mean, are people? There's so many diehard fans of Disney World and Disneyland. Are, are they just taking this in stride? Or no. Is, or
1: is... <laughs> there seems to be a kind of rebellion happening right now. There's a, I've heard a lot of families uh, write in and comment on stories we've done saying that, you know, this might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The company's gotten too greedy. I'll give you an example of why they say this. Ten years ago, a Walt Disney World ticket to a single theme park would be about $85. Right. Now, it's about $150, and that's before you add on all this other stuff. Now, keep in mind that $85 10 years ago, it included FastPass. It included all these other perks that we were talking about. Right. Those perks are now gone, plus the price has gone up. And I think families are increasingly realizing, Disney maybe isn't for me anymore. And I think, honestly, Disney maybe isn't too upset with that, because they had been battling some overcrowding. Now, Jason,
0: the the latest edition of your Frommer's Guide to Disney World is 2020, right? And you're going to be working on an updated version, I would imagine. Right what, now. What big changes, uh, apart from all of these, um, you know, tactical and strategic kind of uh, changes? What new changes, just in the in the in the rides, in the experience, yeah. are mm-hmm. you anticipating for the the new book?
1: Well, before the pandemic, Disney had announced all kinds of changes, and it scaled a lot of that back. Uh, it's basically now sort of sticking to some of the plans that it had laid before for its 50th anniversary, which starts October 1st. That was the day in 1971 when the very first park there, Magic Kingdom, opened. And they have a few rides planned to open, but they've been building these rides, I kid you not, for five years in some cases. There's a new roller coaster going in at Magic Kingdom called, uh, based on the Tron movies. It's a clone of a ride that they built for the Shanghai opening. There's a new roller coaster going in at Epcot based on the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a very large roller coaster called Cosmic Rewind. And they're just now opening a new ride in the Epcot Park in the World Showcase area of the France Pavilion based on Ratatouille. That's a clone of a ride they built in Disneyland Paris about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But these are the big tent poles of their, their 50th anniversary celebration, I guess they're calling it. And that'll take about a year and a half to they- play out.
0: Do they use the different parks to just sort of run things up the flagpole and see what works? Um, You know, like you said, Ratatouille worked in Paris, so they bring it to Florida. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've often heard uh, Imagineers say that the the mantra there is designed once and build twice. That way they don't have to keep paying development costs. So if a ride works, they just duplicate the plans in another park, maybe change the language on the signs.
0: Or spend a lot of money on a lemon, but only do it in one park rather than... Which they
1: have done. I think that's why they're now going toward... Let's see if the ride works uh, before, before we put it everywhere and to find that people don't like it.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jason Cochran. He's the author of the Fromer's Easy Guide to Disney World, Universal, and Orlando. He's also written about American history sites, and he's visited some of them to reconcile his own Southern family story. His book is called Here Lies America, you can hear Jason's interview with us on that topic from our Travel with Rick Steves archives. We have a web link at ricksteves.com slash radio. Jason, this is so fascinating to me because I'm not a big fan of Disneyland right now. My kids are way too old for that, and uh, we did it, you know. But when I was a kid, in fact, I was born the same year Disneyland was created, in mm. 1955. I've got the most beautiful memories of Disneyland in California. Do kids today have that same, apart from all of the complexity for the parents and renting a car and figuring out the lines, do the little kids today, do you think, have the same magical experience that that I would have had when I went there as a child in the 60s?
1: I think there are some kids, but not as many as as had those feelings in the 50s and the 70s. You know, back then, kids could be amazed by a, a mechanical talking bird or a robot pirate, Today's kids aren't as interested in that. They've seen it all. So, so sort of the, the excitement that Disney is good at generating is, I think, less impressive for a jaded child today. Although there are certainly people who love the ritual of it and love the escape of it. I do think that the interest that little kids have isn't as strong as the interest as their parents and their grandparents who really want to take them to Disney. And I think that's a fundamental problem for their future
0: it's parents that want to give them the experience that they had. And yeah. when I went, it was the mad teacups and it was uh, Swiss family Roberts, Robinson's treehouse house and That's the right. tiki hut and, and getting to talk to a, a big, uh, six-foot-tall Mickey Mouse, you know. I know a lot of adults that go there without kids and they're like, they just absolutely love spending love. a day at Disneyland. Passion. Absolutely love it. What's... What's your take on that? It, is Disneyland morphing into something for adults more than little children?
1: Well, it's certainly something that only an adult will be able to pay for. So the adult has to make all the choices. And don't forget that the kind of things that impress people now cost a great deal of money. There's certain investment costs to making a mechanical tiki bird in 1960. But to make Rise of the Resistance, this ride that Disney has a hard time getting people on now, it took you know, an immense amount of money, and it's so complicated, it's always breaking down which is why they can't get enough people on it, which is why they have to have the ticket lottery. So, so there is a cost to sort of the advancement that the company has to go through in order to keep itself interesting to the people who go to it.
0: So Disney has created a lot of magic, but it's created a, a monster at the same time.
1: Yeah, Well, this is going to happen when you push the envelope, right? When you try more daring things, there are more ways for things to go wrong. And if you succeed, you become so popular that it's hard to manage once you, you know, you've reached the top. So you, in a way, you can't quite win. And I think Disney is at that place where it's trying to figure out, how are we going to handle how popular we are? How are we going to handle how complicated our attractions are getting? They haven't yet figured out a way. And uh, at this moment, while they're trying to develop their new systems, um, they're terrifying their fans who have been with them for a long time because the fans think, I may not be able to go maybe more than once every 10 years from now on. And so the jury is still out. On what it means to the future of the brand, as well as the way we experience the parks.
0: And how can you have people in the boardroom that would say, you know, maybe this is good enough? It'll never be good enough. It's always got to be more. It's always it's a
1: publicly traded company. Shareholders uh, demand more every single year, so their back is against the wall. They have to keep growing. There's no such thing as a as a corporation that takes say maybe we should earn less next year. That doesn't happen.
0: That whole quandary is a wild ride in itself. Jason Cochran, thanks for joining us. Thanks for researching and writing a book that helps us enjoy Disney World in Florida smartly, The Fromer's Guide to Disney World. Take care, Jason. Thanks. We'll open our phones next to hear from listeners like you. Even if you're not going anywhere fun right now or your travel plans are waiting on hold, we can let our travel memories bring back the positive vibes we experienced before as we anticipate seeing new places and finding a warm welcome again before too long. We're at 877-333-7425. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com.
4: Hej, jag är Åsa Danielsson och jag är från Sverige och jag reser med Rick Steves. I'm Åsa from Sweden and that was Swedish for I travel with Rick Steves. Hej, jag är Åsa och jag är från Sverige och jag reser med Rick Steves. I Sverige så är vi alla individer, men vi lever In Sweden, we are all individuals, but we live together. Tack så mycket.
0: Tack så mycket. <laughs> the anxieties of these times can sure make our travel memories all the more valuable. Let's spend a few minutes right now with Travel with Rick Steves listeners to hear what kind of fun travels you've had that still give you a boost when you think about them. We're at 877-333-RICK. Laura's on the line from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Hey, Laura, thanks for your call.
3: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Well, I I just have so many incredible memories of travel. Uh, My husband and I have been lucky enough to take 10 European trips. Last year broke our our, our string. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I've taken trips with other people as well. But I was As I was thinking of one of my favorite memories, it was 10 years ago, today, right now, we were on our way to O'Hare Airport to Budapest, and I was super excited because my heritage is Hungarian, Mm -hmm. and so it was just really exciting. Actually, as we were walking along the Danube, there there was somebody selling sweets, and Kukur, which was my last name, was... It, it was it was there, and it was like oh, that was so exciting.
0: You mean Kukur was one of the sweets?
3: It was one of the sweets. Su- it, it, it it means sugar.
0: So your last in, name in is Hungarian. is Hungarian for sugar. That's uh-huh. that's a sweet so last I, name. I had to
3: pick up pass the sugar that, <laughs> my last name on it. That's great. Um, but one of our my there are just so many incredible memories. But one of my favorites, and I, so much of it happens to be serendipity. You know, not anything you plan. But we had stopped for um, tea and coffee and a treat. And it was right across the street from, from the opera house. Uh-huh. And as we were, were just enjoying something really nice, this opera singer started practicing. And it was it was just... I, I, I'm not a big opera fan, but it was just... You know to be sitting there in Budapest and mm. be across from the opera house and to hear this beau it was so beautiful mm-hmm. and it was just it was just so exciting
0: well, you were out and about that's the main that's the main thing if you travel all the way to a place like Budapest, don't hang out in your hotel be out and about and 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 find this sort of as we were talking positive serendipity. there's mm-hmm. lots going on, and you've got to give yourself that flexibility if you've had a whole rigid itinerary where you're going to this palace and that museum and so on. You don't have time for those moments when you find uh, your last name in a in a in a sugar treat on the on the Danube <laughs> river in Budapest.
3: No, you don't, do you? Uh,
0: no, that's great. Hey, well, thanks for calling and I'm glad you've got good memories to enjoy as we wait for that day when we can travel again safely.
3: I know, we can't wait to to be able to go back. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking my
0: call. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And I'd love to talk to Zachary in Boston who's on the line right now. Hey Zachary.
5: Hey, how are you, Rick?
0: I'm good. Thanks for calling in. What memories are you enjoying during this pandemic?
5: Well, a couple of years ago, my um, wife's mother actually was uh, getting married right outside of Barcelona. And, uh, you know, they were hanging around. uh, They rented a villa and they were hanging around it uh, quite a bit, which gave us some time to, like, go about and kind of explore a little bit. And uh, I had been to Barcelona before, so I was a little eager to... Get outside of Barcelona and go see what else was in, you know, Catalonia within like a hour, hour and a half drive. But <laughs> the problem was I needed to rent a car, and I had never, I had never rented a car in Europe before, nor had I ever driven. So I was kind of, uh, I guess, a little spooked about doing it.
0: <laughs> right. So you're talking about you're in Catalonia here. That's the the northeast corner of Spain. Barcelona is the capital, and yes. pr- it's a proud you know nation without a state i mean catalonians like to speak their language they like to wave their flag everybody goes to barcelona yeah. not many people branch out i i can empathize with you there so you're you're ready to break out of barcelona you've got your car you've never driven in europe before what happened
5: it was actually the best experience of my life it was way easier to book and drive around in catalonia like way way easier than i expected it was one of the best hmm. experiences ever it's such a beautiful country and it gives you a chance to like go to those smaller towns that, you know, won't make it into guidebooks and, you know, also don't have any tours there. So you kind of get a look at, yeah, um, you know, just just normal life for like, regular uh, Catalonians.
0: Yeah, like Barcelona has too many tourists. I mean, it's almost to the point where the locals are, yeah. are getting mad at having tourists overwhelming their town. But you drive an hour away, got your own wheels, you'll find little towns that have virtually no tourism. That's the way to experience Catalonia, I would think, and Catalonian culture.
5: Absolutely. And if, you know, anybody listens and hears this, I highly recommend the town uh, It's called Leda, I believe.
0: L-L-E-I-D-I, yeah.
5: Yeah, nice little town. Um not not much there, like a little church on top of the hill, but like just a very kind of a small one of those nice quaint Catalonian Spanish towns, you know?
0: Nice. So what 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 specifically was charming about it? Did you sit on the square and have some uh, tapas or, or what?
5: Well, yeah, we um sat in a square and did have tapas, but the the streets were nice and narrow And it kind of reminded me of, like, old, medieval, like, almost untouched. You could see the modern improvements, but still very medieval. We have a beautiful picture. We're actually sitting on top of the church, which is, you know, on top of the town this little hill. And um, I got a wonderful picture of the back of my mom and my brother-in-law and my wife. And they're looking out Mm. over this, you know, beautiful countryside. It's like, oh, it's one of my favorite pictures. It's on my desk at work.
0: You know, I just think that's so great and I think the inclination for people doing what you did would be to go to the coastline but I bet if you go to the interior that's where you find the real salt-of-the-earth cultural experiences.
5: Absolutely. Totally
0: agree. All right, Zach, thanks for your call. Of course. Take care. Bye now. Okay, bye now. We're taking vicarious trips down memory lane with listeners like you right now on Travel with Rick Steves. What adventures have you had that bring a smile to your face? Send us a few sentences about travel experiences you'll never forget. We might even contact you to be on a future edition of the show to tell us about them. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. Cheryl's giving us a call from Indianola in Washington. Hey, Cheryl.
4: Hi, Rick. How are you?
0: I'm good. I was just over in Kingston the other day. You live in a beautiful corner of the oh, state.
4: It is, it is great.
0: Hey, what kind of travel memories are you thinking about?
4: Well, I heard you speaking on World Cafe a couple of weeks ago, and you were talking about musical memories, finding coming upon um, musical experiences that were unexpected, and it really brought back a, an amazing memory that I had one time in Paris. And what was that? Well, in June 2012, I found myself on my own uh, in Paris I, for just just one day. I had uh, dropped my mom off. We'd been visiting my uncle who lives over there who was married to a uh, French woman. Uh-huh. And she, I put her on the train to the airport, and then I had a day before I had to uh, go on. I think I was meeting my husband at that time. Mm-hmm. So I walked. I just walked. And I didn't have a map. I didn't have a plan. And I found myself in front of the cathedral of Saint-Germain-des-Prés uh-huh. and went in. I discovered it's the oldest church in Paris. And in, in fact, it was founded originally in the 6th century. There's not much uh, of that left, but you can see the foundations from the 10th century, 11th century foundations. Right. And then you can see the architecture changes from Gothic to uh, Renaissance style It was an amazing place. On the way out, there was a table where a young man was selling tickets to a performance that night, that evening, of a gospel choir. And I could not resist the idea of hearing a gospel choir in an ancient French cathedral. Right. So I bought a ticket. And uh, after a couple of hours sitting at a sidewalk cafe, sipping white wine and enjoying uh, French onion soup, it was time to go back to the church. So I went back and joined about 150 other people who came to listen. I'd been singing. The, the reason it meant so much to me, too, is I had been singing in a choir in Seattle for about 11 years, and a couple of times we had sung uh, with uh, the Reverend Pat Light's Total Experience Gospel Choir, mm-hmm. uh, which is a choir that has toured the world and sung for all kinds of people. So I knew a number of, I was familiar with some really great gospel songs. So this choir uh, was, I believe they were French and African, and they not only sang a lot of the songs I knew, I knew most of the songs that they were singing, but they sang it in French, English, and in Swahili.
0: Mm. Beautiful. In
4: that amazing.
0: In that medieval, yeah, in, in in that the, medieval architecture. Yes. So having all these people from different cultures coming together and then singing in a building that was built for, you know, worship and praise a thousand years ago. Amazing experience that must have been.
4: The acoustics were incredible, and the church just resounded. I mean, the voices were so strong, and the harmonies were just so tight, and the energy... Just transported me, it was truly heavenly music,
0: you know it, Paris is a city where you can just if you, if you 're blessed with a day of free time, you know like like you had your friends gone, you got a day to kill, you just walk and you don 't just walk but you pop into things and you read about, on the yes. on, on the little welcome board about oh there 's a concert tonight oh i 'll buy a ticket mm-hmm. you know oh i 'll contribute to the yes. the arts right here, and you you have that sort of positive serendipity. And you hear uh, be- beautiful choral music in a Gothic church, sung in Swahili. That's a cool memory.
4: That was, yeah. It was. It's really one of the peak memories I have of uh, my travels because that was just. I was by myself, and I just, just chanced upon this. It was, and it happened in wonderful.
0: Well, that's the mark of a good traveler, and that is an inspiration to all of us. Cheryl, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're enjoying travel memories. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and Amitava has emailed us from Danville in California and writes, I recently took a road trip to Eastern Sierra on scenic California 395 South and California 190 East to Furnace Creek in Death Valley, which was a very informative, awe-inspiring trip. I'd like to recommend that and a memorable, poignant visit to Manzanar Relocation Historic Site off Highway 395 South. Road trips can be very enjoyable since flying and sailing to distant locations are still not recommended. Thanks, Amitava, for some tips for enjoying a road trip in California. Kathy's given us a ring from New Orleans. Kathy, thanks for calling.
6: Nice to talk to you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Are you enjoying some travel memories during this pandemic time?
6: Uh, Yes. I've spent a lot of time um, looking at Google Maps and (laughs) flying down down on Street View and taking a look at all kinds of far-flung places.
0: So where are you going in your mind, in your memories?
6: Oh, I mean, you name it. I'm in Siberia. I'm in... Islands in the southern Pacific, near Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anywhere. Senegal. <laughs>
0: well, that's nice. I go all over. <laughs> give, give me a story. Let's just pick a somewhere in Southeast Asia.
6: Um, well, when I was in college, I um, in the mid-80s, uh, the program was mainly in Chiang Mai, Thailand, but over Christmas break, we could go wherever we wanted to for a week or so, and so a few of us went over to Burma, and, well, Back then it was Burma. Now it's Myanmar, of course.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: We had an amazing week where you would hire a um, a couple of guys to drive you around the country in the back of a Toyota pickup for a week. Uh, they had benches going down the length of the the, the flatbed, and then a, a roof over the top. They would they had a set route where they would go in a big loop up to the north and. It was an amazing
0: week. So a week uh, in the back of a pickup with a with a, yeah. some driver that you didn't really know and uh, you and your friend are just bumbling around Burma.
6: Yeah, well, there are two, two of the, my classmates from my my program and... Um, Did you feel safe? We in, we, um, most of the time, yes, but there was one night when we were driving through a, a pretty hilly or even mountainous area and it was well after dark and we were trying to make it to the next stop which is wherever it was we didn't know where we were and um, one of my classmates got she started feeling carsick in the back and she and we were banging on the the the, the window the back window of the cab saying pull over pull over and they didn't want to stop and then they finally stopped and um, the driver was like we have to hurry we have to hurry and (laughs) we were like they said there are bandits on this road
0: oh no Um,
6: and so we heard, got back on the road, and within a few minutes, we saw headlights behind us. And around every time we went around a the curve, they were a little bit closer. <laughs> and we were all getting scared. And so we were thinking, well, maybe if we show our European faces out the back window and wave and wave, and then they'll maybe think, well, it's not worth getting in trouble. And so we did that, and they, they passed us, and we were like, okay, that's fine. Then we got pulled over at some military checkpoint, and a bunch of, well, it's like two or three really drunken soldiers insisted on getting a lift to the next town, and so they climbed up on the roof of this <laughs> cab, and they were up there, and we decided that, well, even if they were drunk, it was probably better to have soldiers with guns protecting us.
0: <laughs> so Wow.
6: Crazy night, but everything turned out fine. Everything
0: turned out fine. I, my my memories of uh, traveling in around Chiang Mai and Thailand and that area are uh, similar. On the road, every every vehicle going is sort of like free game for somebody to hop on. It's just like yeah. everybody hops into the back of the van, and there's of course an obligation to let military onto your vehicle if they if they need to go somewhere, but. Uh, it's one way to get around uh, in Southeast Asia. Whoa, those are some pretty vivid memories, Kathy. Thank you for sharing, and I'm I'm glad you survived it. I don't know if you'd want to do that these days. No,
6: thank <laughs> goodness, my parents didn't know what I was doing that week. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's a lot of a lot of us have done some things in Southeast Asia where, or anywhere on the road, that you kind of go, "Yeah, I'm glad I did that because I survived," but I wouldn't want my kids to do it. Yeah. Okay, Kathy. Take care.
6: You too. Thank bye. you. Bye bye.
0: And Dusty in Cefalu in Sicily, beautiful town in Sicily, has emailed us. And Dusty writes, After hiking Mount Fuji in Japan, I was drenched in rain when I boarded the public bus down the mountain back to Tokyo, which is a three-hour ride. I was the only passenger, so I sat in the back and took off most of my clothes and draped them across the seats to dry. I also spread the contents of my wallet on the seat next to me to dry off. As passengers began to board, I pulled my clothes closer in and eventually put everything back on. When I got to my stop in Tokyo, the bus was packed full, and I got off, and then the bus sped away. It was then that I realized that I did not have my wallet. Losing my wallet would have ended the rest of my trip. I found the bus station where I bought the ticket, but the ticket agent didn't speak English. Then she closed her ticket line and disappeared in the back for about five minutes. When she reemerged, she had a walkie-talkie in her hand and motioned for me to follow her. Then a bus pulled up, the door opened, and it was the same driver. He reached over and handed me my wallet, fully intact. The ticket agent smiled and bowed. (laughs) Ha! I gained the best souvenir ever. I discovered the kindness of strangers and could not even speak their language. That is a great story, Dusty. Thanks for sharing it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Listen again whenever you like at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.